Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Thanks for watching a special episode of the Jude 3 Project. I'm your guest host, Dr. Christina Edmondson, and today we're joined by Dr. Esau McCulley, and we're highlighting a chapter from his upcoming book, Reading While Black. So welcome, Dr. McCulley. Uh, for those who don't know you, you um, I'd love for you to share just a little bit about yourself, about your story, um, and then we'll get into some, some questions uh, so that you can help us to understand more about this project that you've just taken on. Yes. Um, thank you for taking the time to ask me about the book. I am an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College. I did my PhD at the University of St. Andrews, where I studied under the direction of N.T. Wright. I'm a child of the Black Baptist Church. I grew up in a Black Baptist Church um, in Huntsville, Alabama, Union Hill Primitive Baptist Church. Shout out. Um, but I meandered into the Anglican tradition, and I'm trying to make sense of how both of those things can be true and authentic at the same time. And like you said, I'm my my forthcoming book, Reading While Black, comes out. Oh, in a, I guess in a in a in a, about a week by the time this goes live. And I'm married, and we have four wonderful children: Luke, Claire, Peter, and Miriam. My wife's name is Mandy. She's a pediatrician and a Navy doc. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, and, and thank you for giving all those kids a shout out. You know, they would love that. Up. They're gonna watch the video, so when, oh, they, yeah. when they hear their name, it'll matter to them. <laughs> And it does matter. Yes. It does matter. So I didn't, I didn't realize, Esau, so this is my little rabbit trail already. I didn't realize that you came from a primitive Baptist uh, yes. background. Yes. And um, so I, I was raised in the uh, progressive Baptist church. And um, so so different, but there are some, some significant overlaps. Yes. And um, I consider myself a daughter and granddaughter of the black church as well. But yeah. from primitive Baptist to Anglican. Yes. Come on now. Oh. <laughs> come on now. <laughs> I feel like I see some connections because I think there are, the there are. I mean, some beautiful liturgical elements. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the king, the, the primitive Baptist tradition is a King James only church. But mm -hmm. we, now we shout like everybody else. And, you know, we got I, at the time, Kurt Franklin was cutting edge. But, you know, everybody does <laughs> Kurt now. But we, we was on Kurt in the 90s before everybody else was, you know, when it was wild and everybody wanted to do Georgia Mass Choir. So mm -hmm. we always a tradition that had robes and liturgies and formal mm -hmm. prayers and we what well, monthly Eucharist. So that part um, was at least allow allow for me to kind of have some appreciation for liturgy and structure. For me, it was like becoming an Anglican. <clears throat> was it? I mean, a lot of Black people kind of have bad experiences in Black churches, and then they kind of come in evangelicalism and go evangelicalism is the place to be. You know, the black church is mm -hmm. whack. That wasn't me at all. I had a positive experience in the black church, right. and I consider and I consider myself positively formed. By the, the whole point of the book is, I went to seminary thinking that I had to learn all of this stuff to go back to my community, and I found out 
that like evangelicalism and white spaces, those that really understand the black church. So for me, it wasn't, it was never a rejection of blackness or black theology or the African-American church. It was just, I just discovered the liturgy and the, the set structure of the prayers and the church calendar helped me live out my Christian life in a way that I found healthy and life-giving. And so what I've always wanted to do was to have the best of both worlds, which is to say, like, I want to keep the Black tradition that shaped me, but I just want to add with it the prayers and the saints and the calendar, the Christians always, Christians that believed everywhere throughout time. And not only that, when you kind of, I tell people to like, people love to talk about like pan-Africanism when it's related to kind of secular, the secular world. But if you're going to talk about pan-Africanism as it relates to Christianity, the vast majority, like nine, I shouldn't say the, I can't give you the number, the vast, significant, yes, the vast majority of black Christians in the world, black and brown Christians in the world are liturgical. Between the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and the Anglican Church in Africa and in the Middle East, a lot of these people have been shaped by the liturgy. It's because of the legacy of what happened with the liturgical churches in America that that's not seen as here amongst like African-Americans. But if you take yourself over to, you know, Nigeria, Uganda, you'll see our Pentecostal brothers and sisters worshiping the Lord, but you'll also see um, my Nigerian and Ugandan brothers and sisters investments and in, in singing and chanting the Lord's praises in the liturgy. Excellent, excellent. Thank you for connecting those some of those dots for us, because you know, that was my first my first rabbit trail. I mean, so, so one, one, uh, that's the last thing. So one of the things you could talk about is the recovery of kind of black Christianity. We're looking for a black Christianity that isn't informed by colonialization. And you right. see a lot of people going back and looking at Ethiopia and looking right. at these places. Look, there's an Ethiopian Orthodox church. There's a church in Nubia. There's all of these mm -hmm. churches, but those churches, and I, no shade to my Baptist background. I'm a, you know, I'm a scholar <laughs> of the church, but those were liturgical churches. Yeah. yeah. And so like, to be honest, like, Blackness and the liturgy go back as far into Christianity as you want to go. And a significant number of um, at least the African-American churches in the mainline tradition mm -hmm. were themselves liturgical. So like in the Episcopal Church, the black churches in the Episcopal Church tended to be more formal than informal. So that's kind of a long tradition that you see in like even now in the black Pentecostal tradition, you see the adoption of Anglican vestments. And so there is this long history of kind of black love from out for formality and liturgy and structure and tradition, even if even if other parts of the black church and America are disconnected from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say that even in traditions where we don't think of that overtly as taking place, kind of a formalized liturgy, there is there is an implicit liturgy um, that is striking, particularly if you're not from that culture or that group, because you'll because you won't know what's happening. That's how you know there's there, there's something taking place there that people are well aware of. I tell people in my church there were certain times where you shout and certain times where you didn't shout. Right? You didn't shout during the offering. Right? You know that wasn't the appropriate time to catch the Holy Spirit. There was like a important part of the sermon. Not only that, there's music that accompanies the shouting. Right? right. Once that right. organ hits that note. You know that this is the time for this moment in the church. In the black church that I grew up in, they'd have this point where these old deacons would come and kneel before the congregation and they would lead the prayer. Right. And they would say these spirituals that were in nobody's hymn book. And I've Googled them. <laughs> I can't even find them. This is Alabama. They came straight from the fields into the congregation. There's this one called, um, oh, like, I can't raise my right hand without the Lord. You got that? You, did y'all sing that song? We did not sing that song. Listen, 
when I say, when I say, although, although that is true, that is indeed true. <laughs> like, oh, listen, y'all, you won't watch, y'all will Google this, but the black churches that no, no, I can't. When I look around the world and see what the Lord is, man, I could tell oh. you some of these songs and yes. I went and looked for them. Well, you know they all, you know they all had different titles, so it's it's yeah. possible that if you move through some of the verses, yeah, I, yes, and, I'm gonna have to go through the verses. Then uh, I'll get to you. But I'll when I look around you. to see what the Lord has done for me, mm-hmm. I can't treat this called one is called without the Lord. I can't treat my neighbor right without the Lord, and the, and the response is without the Lord, without the Lord. That's all of these spiritual that we will sing, and the only way that you mm-hmm. could learn it would actually be in the congregation. I promise, man, sometimes I think it's like three or four slaves that like founded Union Hill in mm. the today songs. Because outside of these churches, I've heard, I've heard I've, no other black person mm. knows what I'm talking about. But if you feel, <laughs> you know, and somebody who listens to this, tell me I'm not crazy about this. <laughs> they, got, they got your back. And they got, I, got my back. And, I, I, didn't, and I, I, didn't and I believe you. Receipts. I had to put out the receipts. Because people say, how can you talk about reading while black and you Anglican? I said, no, 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 no. My grandmama, I mean, my granddad, my mom, my uncles, my aunties, they're all in the black church. And they and they yeah. check me, too. They make sure that I haven't kind of lost my mom. My mama go, you're not out there praying to Mary or something, are you? What you doing over there? You know, they, they, they're very direct, direct people. Okay, getting at, getting at the main things. Yeah. Well, so I'm excited to get into this this chapter that I had the privilege to kind of move through that, that you wrote. Uh, Freedom is no fear. And in this chapter in your book, you um, well, I'm going to let you describe. It. I can tell you how how I experienced it is that um, you you really highlight the relationship with unjust policing policing over the over black bodies in the American context and what our faith, what. Um, even examples of the teaching of Paul uh, can can teach us about um, the moments that we are experiencing now, as well as the inherited terrors that shape Black Americans and Black Christians today. So, um, one, why was it critical for you to put this chapter in this book? Um, and then I've got a follow up question about some of the things that I noticed that you did just in your writing in in that chapter. Well, this this chapter is actually the, the origin of the whole book that became Reading While Black. It's the first chapter that I wrote um, in the book. And, and in, in a lot of ways, it goes to it's really hard to explain, um, Christina, because there's a bunch of different ways to tell the story. One is I grew up, like I said, I grew up in the black church. I grew up in Huntsville, right down the road from Birmingham. So I'm in the shadow of the civil rights movement. So the story, Dr. King and Selma and the bus boycott and in the dogs and all of the, and the water hoses shaped my spirituality. So I was I was always this idea of the kind of the combination of kind of black church spirituality and the pursuit of justice. But then you kind of go to college. You don't lose yourself. You just begin to ask the kinds of questions that are shaped by the world in which you went in. So I went from an all black church to a largely white college. And then you start running into these kind of intellectual challenges to the Christian faith. And so my academic scholarship began to pursue those kinds of questions, arguing largely with kind of white Christians from Germany and dealing with the mainline tradition in the white church and evangelicalism. And so I I don't think, I don't think I lost myself in the sense of losing black consciousness, but what I felt like I was absorbed with someone else's questions. And I would say that the kind of weight, the, the kind of turning moment for me was um, Trayvon Martin in 2013, 2014, when I was getting ready to start my PhD program. And so Trayvon was kind of like, when I saw it, and I was like, man, 
I thought that like a lot of the kind of evangelicals and other people who I hang out with, they would care and they would begin to respond to it. But the kind of general disdain for those issues related to kind of black injustice, and even though Zimmerman wasn't a cop, it was it was related to kind of the policing of black bodies. And so that awakened in me the memories of my own trauma, but I kind of put it aside because, you know, I was beginning a PhD program. So three years later, fast forward three years later, with the back end of Obama, the kind of, well, we didn't realize at the time, but the beginning of what became the Trump presidency. And it felt like, and the language that I've used to describe it is kind of the second red summer. You had the, you had the red summer when African-Americans were coming back from World War um, One, I think it was. And the kind of the, the, the riots and the lynchings and the, and the deaths of the murder of black people to kind of put us back with, into what they perceived our place to be because we wanted more freedoms um, coming from World War One and ha- having seen the world. It was kind of this red summer of all of this death. And then I remember coming towards the end of my Ph.D. program, seeing all of the black people who were being killed and all the things that are happening as it relates to the policing in the United States in like 16 going into the election. And I began to think that like my first book, if I can find it, it's over there. I can't read over there and grab it. It was important, but I knew this. No black person was going to read that book. I knew the book that I had written for my dissertation. No black people were going to read. And I said, I can't spend my life doing scholarship that isn't directly relevant to the community that shapes me. This is actually for Christina. You will meet me about four or five months after this when I get back to the United States and we come to the first courageous conversation. This is kind of me in the middle of that transition. And I began to say to myself, Mm -hmm. well, how can I write Mm -hmm. things that are relevant to the community that shaped me? And what's the first question that's pressing upon us as black people? And I would say one of the main things that was pressing upon us is the question of policing. And then I started looking around. I said, you know what? I can I, I don't see any Christian like in the I shouldn't say that in the biblical scholarship that I was encountering. I didn't see anybody talking about it. Mm-hmm. And so I have to say I said to myself, well, then I want to look and see what the Bible has to say about how the state polices its citizens. And that was the origin of the chapter. It was like for me, I wanted I wanted to write something that when black people saw it, they knew that it was for them. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot, and this is kind of one of the, the difficult parts of like marketing this book. There's a lot of books that are written to explain blackness to other people. Mm-hmm. And I said, I didn't want to explain blackness to other people. I wanted <laughs> to write a book to black people. And mm-hmm. I wanted to address the issues that was pressing in our community. And I couldn't think of one that was more relevant at the time than the question of policing. And even now, you fast forward like three years later, mm-hmm. the book is coming out in the in the in the aftermath of Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. And it feels eerily similar because it was written in the context of um Eric Garner and Tamir Rice. And so like it's the same story. And so in that sense, it feels like it was written months ago, even though it was written years ago. I remember I was reading, I was rereading the book when I was getting ready to put it in. I think it's in chapter one where it says um, it feels like America is stepping on the neck of black America. I I can't believe I wrote that in like 2017. And it feels like I'm writing in response to George Floyd. And so part of the book then, and especially this chapter, was an attempt to say, what is the question I think the black people, especially black Christians, want to have answered? And the question that I thought was really important was um, Christianity and policing. That's really helpful. I mean, I think it speaks to um, the, the the nearness of God. You know, when you when um, when you're unable to bring to the Lord real questions that relate to your real life, your yeah. reality, 
that it, it creates this uh, kind of abstract, distant, far off um, yeah. sense of God, a, a depersonalized God. Yeah. But the ability to say like, black people got these issues and yeah. the God who loves black people has something to say <laughs> to those <Yeah>. issues. <laughs> That's, I'm trying to talk about chapter one. The chapter one was like the South got something to say. What, what I want, What I want to say is like, the idea that you know that God sits apart from the issues of the day, and and kind of delivers these kind of abstractions and as important as these things are, grace, atonement, all of these things they're important. I believe in all of these things as important theological concepts. But the the decision not to bring these questions, these issues, these theological concepts into conversation with the issues of the of the day is a manifestation of privilege. Because the privilege, the privileged people support the status quo. That's the reason it's the status quo. People benefit, people benefit from it. And so what I want to say is, what exactly does the scripture have to say about um the things that we're experiencing in this country in this moment? And one of the things that I that I found was that the Bible did speak directly to the issue of policing, especially as related in 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 Romans chapter thirteen, which is interesting because Romans chapter thirteen is often used for to to do the exact thing, the opposite of what I say it does. Oftentimes, Romans thirteen is used to kind of support the status quo, but I actually tried to argue that Romans thirteen properly understood upsets the status quo. So it's kind of a revolutionary reading of Romans thirteen in that context. No, absolutely. And then you also, within that chapter two, you do some work around kind of John the Baptist and yeah. um, within that New Testament text about, you know, what then is required of me in yeah. light of this Messiah, the yeah. Messiah who has come. And so yeah. um, I think that biblical, biblical theology narrative that you place in there is particularly empowering um, and important. Um, you also do something, even before you get to that part, you yeah. tell a bit of your own story yes about your own relationship to what it was like growing up in the south black and athlete um and just trying to make it home uh, uh, through encounters with yeah. police and um as i was reading it and thinking about formulating even this question today you took a risk in doing that because i think that we take risks when we tell pieces of our story yeah. Um, but you just you did that. And then you also talk about how you decided not to inundate the chapter with a heaviness of a bunch of statistics about this is true. This is true. And I think that supports your earlier point that this book was not written to tell people stories about black people, but written yeah. to black people who yeah. don't really need coaching on this. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need coaching that, on that, that, that. That sentence was a flex, too. I'm glad that you asked me about that <laughs> sentence. So let me tell you about stories and pain. One time I was being interviewed by someone and they said, well, tell me about like the worst thing that happened to you kind of as a black person de dealing with racism in America. And I said, no. And the reason I said no is because I didn't believe, I don't believe in performative pain. That we, like the African-Americans have to display these horrible things that happened to us so that people feel guilty enough to treat us with dignity. The dignity should be an assumption. You're not that, you should not have to see my pain in order to like understand, in order to show empathy and, and to want to change. So why did I tell this story? I think that um, part of speaking to the Black community, I call it like the ticket to entry 
right? You can't like I don't think you can you can enter into certain black conversations unless black people know that you understand the scope of the problem. So like this whole like let's just be each other friend like these kind of superficial trite answers aren't going to get people anywhere. And so I began to tell the story about what happened to me so that the, so that the black reader could understand like listen, this is not an abstraction for me. This is my lived experience. And it was funny because I had to choose there were so many stories to choose from. I chose that story because it was so vivid in my head. I told the story of kind of like how I would prepare to go go places um, as an kind of as a black man in high school because I I grew up in a mixed economy in the sense of like I have friends who are drug dealers, I have friends who are like in church every day, I have friends who are athletes, and so I had this rule like look, and I would say it to them before you got in my car, you couldn't have anything illegal. If you had weed, if you had whatever, you know what? God bless you. I'm not judging you, but I'm not going to jail for y'all. So I knew that when any time somebody pulled me over, it was like there was no problem whatsoever. And so the fact that I had followed all of those rules, I had never sped, I wasn't speeding, I wasn't doing anything, and I still got harassed by the police shows you kind of the extent to which kind of anti, like blackness is guilt permeates the culture, especially relates to policing. And then I realized at the end of that story, I was like, some people are going to say this is kind of an isolated incident. And I said, well, I should probably like state some statistics, put in a footnote here, three or four books to read on the topic. And then I said to myself, and I'm glad you asked about it. I was like, black people know this. Black people doesn't don't need like people to teach them that 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 we are unfairly policed. And that was one of those points in the book. There was this turning point where I could have either like turned to because I know that you know other people are gonna read it besides black people. I hope that other people read it. But I said, was I going to turn my gaze towards my white audience and say, here's like a thousand words explaining why this is real. And I said, you know what? If you are a hostile reader, you're not going to believe me anyway. And if you're black, you know. And so I think I put that sentence in there and like moved on. And that was not just like a a a a, a moment in that in that chapter. It was actually like where I came to a grips with how I was going to write the book. And I don't necessarily always like address the question of kind of like the white Christian who thinks that racism is largely interpersonal and that it's not real and that they need like copious amounts of data to kind of prove this point. That is not this book. This book is saying, how do I make sense of these things in light of what I believe the scriptures teach? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I I appreciate that because I think um, there's, I think there's trauma in having to always move something, right? And the the rigidity of the disbelief, yes. um, the commitment to the disbelief of black suffering, only further um, strengthens the intensity of the actual suffering yes. of the despair, right? Particularly if you're going to a particular source to be what alleviates the suffering yeah. and the pain or understanding, um, you can see how that can cycle for us. I remember, um, I, I will say this. And, and I'm trying to find a way to, to get this sentence correctly, but I can never say it exactly what I want to say it. There's not a group of Christians in the world that are consistently like not believed um, as often as black Americans are as relates to their claims about injustice. And, and with the audience being like other white Christians, like yes. we are called liars, effectively liars, corporate liars, more consistently than any other group. Right. And, and what I'm saying is just like this is not people act like this is there's like two sides to this debate. Now, I don't want to say and, 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 and I don't want to say the black people are uniform in their beliefs. We're not uniform. 
But like as high as a percentage that you're going to get with a diverse group of people, you're going to get black people who are saying there's systemic problems in this country, especially as it relates to policing. Can you find black voices disagree? Yes, you can. And that is, and I'm actually not even mad at black people who disagree. I'm not mad at them. Like y'all grown, they can make their own decisions. What I'm saying is when those three or four voices are lifted up and they're used, they're effectively weaponized against the majority of black America. I just don't understand how people do that. I really don't. I, I don't understand it. And as a black person, if I had that opinion, which I don't, it would keep me up. It would keep me up late at night to look around and say, man, there's so many people who hate us, who love my work. And so what I want to say is I don't want my scholarship to be weaponized against black people especially the kind of the general consensus of black. I, I feel like I trust what the Holy Spirit is saying to black Christians because of, of our long testimony of faithfulness. And so when black Christians are saying these things are happening to us, especially as it relates to policing and people are saying, no, those things are not happening to you. You're effectively calling us liars. And if you are going to like sit there and call all the black people liars, then the book isn't for you. So just move on. I got work to do. I got ministry to do. Yeah. I got ministry to do. Right. I got ministry to do to the actual people who are experiencing right. these things. And so that was really that was really in my heart is to say, how can I minister to these people? And yeah, I want yeah. So that's 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 what was going on. And it just really is. It's a passion of mine. I remember listening to, and I told this story a thousand times. If you heard me talk about the podcast, I remember listening to. They were interviewing a Black Lives Matter protester and they were saying they said this isn't your mama civil rights movement and it and like what i heard was kind of an explicit rejection of kind of the central kind of theological and spiritual claims like around civil rights and justice coming out of the black church and what i wanted to be able to say to that like the book was written to that person the book was written to say you know what these texts can still be or source of hope as we contend for justice and that actually abandoning the scriptures and the search for justice doesn't lead you to freedom. It just leads you to another form of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point that you raise and the tension of that, that happens from generation to generation in justice and the justice struggle. Yeah. Um, this sense of feeling like you are, people are offering Christianity um, instead of being a source of empowerment um, and courage and, and boldness, they're offering it as a suppressant or yeah. as a um, a way to dilute um, yeah. the, the, the rightful the, the, the rightful anger yes. um, that that is a, that is a fruit and a product of oppression. And so it, it makes sense to me that people would push back on, on anything that makes it feel like you're trying to sell me something to you're kind of just trying to give me an appeasement, yes. or trying to get me on board to be in agreement with, with my oppression versus yeah. this, this Christianity that is captured uh, in, and reading while black. Yeah. And so the reason why the subtitle is really like this, the subtitle is key. African-American biblical interpretation as an exercise in hope. What I was going to say is that when black people experience oppression, this is my claim. This one of the central claims of the book. When black people like saw experienced the oppression, and they looked into the biblical text themselves and said, is the God revealed in those texts a friend or an enemy as it relates to justice? 
the consensus coming back from the black community is this God is our friend. He is our ally. He is, he's not even our ally. He's the one who's going to bring his purposes to pass. And so they saw in these texts, the impetus to fight for freedom. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to be able to articulate that for like the, the next generation. I wanted to say like, look, don't listen to the people who are saying that Christianity is going to make you docile. Christianity historically has made black people dangerous because Christianity told black people the truth about who they were in the context of a slave master religion rooted in a false anthropology that said black people were less. And then the black people got a hold to the Bible and says, no, no, no. It says image of God right here. It says that God is the liberator of the oppressed. There's a whole book called the Exodus where God let his people go. And that these texts became kind of the, the, the impetus, not only for black demands for justice, but for the black vision for community on the other side of justice, right? The universal brotherhood of humanity. It's like the AME. AME's um, like one of the first kind of, I don't want to, AME and the Baptists are kind of both started around the same time. But AME, one of the first national African-American denominations, right? Um, God, our father. This is the old version. It's, I think I used the new version. God, our father, um, Christ, our brother, humanity, our family. And the idea is that it's, it's the Christian gospel that said that, right? That, that it made humanity our family. And it's the Christian message that says there is justice, but there's also a community on the other side of justice. And I wanted to be able to kind of present that to the people. No, super. Very, very helpful. And um, you, again, I wanted to, I wanted to go to back. To I know. I can talk about the chapter. Sorry. No, no. You talk about what you want to talk about. Yeah. You talk about it now. <laughs> but it actually is still talking about this chapter. And I mean, you, you, you do some really good work, particularly with that Romans passage that you lift up. Yeah, you know, so Paul, I think, is the go-to um, yeah. in in a, a whole host of um, social justice spaces as, um, in not a positive way. He's yeah. like the go the go-to of like yeah. Paul. I think I feel like you coaching me on how to deal with this yeah. crazy system instead of dismantling it. Yes, and um, and you do this really fascinating work of lifting up kind of how those those texts have been misinterpreted. Could you lead us to and do just a piece of it? Obviously we want the people to buy the book. Yeah, okay. But I'll, I'll give you a couple of things. One is, I'll talk about Romans 13. And Romans 13 is, you know, you should submit to the state. And what I tried to do is actually push the problem kind of to its logical conclusion. Because the real the real issue behind Romans 13 isn't like the fact that we should submit to the government. Like black people don't have any problem submitting to the government as long as the government is acting right, right? When the government starts acting poorly, that's the real issue. And so the real question that we have with Romans 13 isn't the call to submission, it's the problem of wicked rulers. When you ask the question of wicked rulers, you're actually asking the question of theodicy. Why is there evil in the world? And so I try to say is that we need to understand what the nature of the problem is. And the nature of the problem is there are wicked rulers in the world. Now, the question is, does Paul and the wider Bible have anything to say about wicked rulers more broadly? And what I do is I point back to like Romans chapter nine, where Paul says to Pharaoh, Paul quotes the passage. God says, I raised you up for this exact reason, Pharaoh, so that I can be glorified by slapping you around. That's the book of the Exodus. And Paul cites this story in Romans chapter nine. And so what I'm saying is we don't have in Paul's own, in the same letter that is used to kind of advocate for unquestioned obedience to the state. You have Paul saying, look at this example where God kicks the state's butt for what? 
for sinning against people who are oppressed. And the question then becomes, well, why do we then center Romans 13, submit to the state and not then submit? I mean, take seriously Paul's own use of Pharaoh as an example of God judging wicked rulers. And then you take another step back and you say, well, let's look at the canon more broadly. And you have examples of God bringing judgment upon wicked and evil kingdoms. And you do. You look in places like the book of Daniel. We have all of these strange visions. You know, this kingdom comes and this kingdom is thrown down and this kingdom comes and this kingdom is thrown down. And that shows you that God is in the middle of kind of judging nations and he's judging nations through other nations. One of the stories that's often neglected is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. We know the story of Nebuchadnezzar where he has to kind of eat grass and all of this other stuff and he kind of goes crazy. But one of the things that people don't often pay attention to in Daniel, I think it's Daniel chapter four, is that in this story, um, Daniel says, you know what? You've been very arrogant and God's going to judge you. But if you will cease your injustice, if you cease your injustice, it might be that God would have mercy upon you. And so Daniel then says, so there's two reasons that um, Nebuchadnezzar is judged and loses his mind. One is because of his arrogance, but in the second one is because of his, his mistreatment and the exploitation of the oppressed. And so what I want to say then is that if you look at the biblical, if you look at the wider biblical story, then you see the fact that the Bible teaches very clearly that God is in the process of lifting nations up and tearing them down. You could even look to the very end of the New Testament and see the same thing with the prophecies about Rome in the book of Revelation. And so you see this idea that God is involved in the lifting up and the tearing down. What I think, what I think then we ought to make of Romans 1, 1, 13, kind of 1 and 2, is the idea that although God is in the process of using human beings to lift up nations and tear them down, and that God is judging wicked nations. I think that what Romans 13 does is it shows a rightful skepticism about us being able to discern our role in that narrative, right? That God is telling me to like when I can and I can't like lead this revolution. I, I use the example of the Exodus again, where Moses sees the problem. Moses says they are oppressing these Egyptians, these Israelites, and he goes and kills them. But they wasn't God's timing yet. So Moses had to fall back. And then God in his own good time does liberate the nations. And so what I wanted to say is that I don't think that you can talk about the Bible as a whole or even Paul's own book of book of Romans to to advocate for this kind of quiescence. Um, before the state. And we can even look in the in the second wider second temple period, the time of Jesus, as one of being one of the most kind of prominent examples that you see, one of one of one of one of the more popular books that you see during this period was the book of Daniel. And Daniel is exact Daniel is nothing but like how do you live faithfully under in the context of the empire when there's nothing else to do but kind of like make the best of it. And so I think that sometimes um, Paul gets a bad example, gets a bad reputation because Paul isn't living in a democratic republic where the Christians are the majority and they can let people go. Paul is living as an ethnic minority and the Christians are a minority religious group in the context of a, of a totalitarian regime. And he's trying to make sense of what it means to be a Christian in that context. And I would say the best modern example would be like, well, what kind of letter um, like to the church in Afghanistan might Paul write, right? Where the Christians don't have the same freedom of expression and they have no political power. And we might say, well, from the American perspective, then Paul should have said A, B, and C. But I'm not necessarily sure that the options that were available, that are available to us were available to him. 
and we're not necessarily limited to the solutions that he offers when we're in this context where we now have political power and we don't just have to submit to the state we can actually change the government of the state via our constitutionally given rights no really really helpful to contextualize that a bit for us and to think about our present moment our present station and how best to respond yeah. based on oppression and the, the social power yeah. that we have to to wield in this particular context one, one of the things um, that happens in that context you take a, a story that was written to a, an oppressed people with a lot of without political mm -hmm. power, and then you use that text to maintain power that Christians have over other Christians to justify exploitation, right? So what I'm saying is when we're saying now submit to the state, when the state is doing something unjust in America, when we are the state, like we're a republic, we can vote out anybody that we want. And so we're no longer in this place where there's nothing you can do. But listen, but people who economically benefit from the status quo say, look, Paul says submit to the state. Therefore, you have to submit until something that they don't like happened. Right. Then the mask comes out and there's like, I'm not submitting to the state anymore. And so we, we sh this shows you the ways in which even that Romans 13 passage isn't actually applied consistently because I'm still waiting for someone to explain to me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a history major. Explain to me how we can have the narrative that we do around the American Revolution. No taxation without representation. Let's burn this down as a viable interpretation of Romans 13. You can't. And that means that when it benefited those people in power, they contextualize Romans 13. Right? But, but as it relates to the kind of the continued oppression of black people, they say, well, hold on. You just got to submit. And so I want, what I want to say is I, I consider that to be disingenuous as an actual, it's not a disinterested interpretation of Paul. It's an interpretation of Paul that often serves those who are in power. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then what does it mean when the, when the face of the oppression, the hand of the oppression is someone who claims allegiance to the same faith tradition, right? Yes. Um, and how that certainly complicates um, and it is it, not exactly what that Romans passage is talking about, right? Yeah. So, um, and so it's so important for I think us to grapple with that and just do the the good work of of biblical study and, context, and contextualization. Um, you know, I, I was um, I was thinking about you know um, you, you mentioned John the Baptist his his in his conversation with the discussion with the soldiers who are like yeah. what what should we do. Yes. What should we do in light of this Messiah who's coming? And and I was thinking just a broader question. What what are the implications of grace? What are the yes. implications of the grace that Jesus Christ has extended to us and showers on us? How then yes. do we live? Right. And and yes. when I think about my experience in terms of reconciling kind of orthodoxy and, and ortho, you know, praxy and even our affective elements. Right. Um, with that, my black church tradition those things are weaved together. Uh, because we have been given grace, you gotta be gracious. I mean, because, because, because yeah. you know, you, I mean, it's, it's nice to be nice. I'm like, I've heard that in the black church. Yeah. I mean, there's a sense of, there's like an obligation, not that you're earning your salvation, but your salvation is working itself out for you. There's, there's yeah. evidences of the working itself out. Doesn't mean that it's, you know, a utopia by any means, the black church is not a utopia, um, but it, the, the, the grace is working itself out. So these soldiers are asking, you know, how is this supposed to work out of me? Yeah. And I, I'm grateful that you lifted this portion up. And I wanted to see if there, along with this piece, but if there are some other ways that you might um, offer listeners an opportunity to see in the New Testament how this grace is to be lived out in the midst yeah. of people who are experiencing um, fear from oppression and, and yeah. disenfranchisement. 
So in the, in the chapter, there's kind of like two halves. The ha- the first half to kind of put this in the context. I talk about how Paul says that that the um, that the that the emperor doesn't bear the sword in vain. And the whole point is, he said, if you do good, you will be rewarded. If you do bad, you'll be punished. And the point I try to make is that this is actually a very helpful text for Christians because black people want th- this is what black people want. We don't want to be punished for doing something that we didn't do. And if people do something bad against us, we want them to be punished. And so the, Paul's language around the sword isn't the same saying that like the emperor can go and start a war when he wants. He's saying that the emperor's job is policing. But what this means, though, is that Paul locates kind of the, the, the approach towards policing in the hands of the government. He said the government is responsible for the culture of policing that it creates. And that a healthy government creates a culture in which the innocent aren't victimized. And so what I want to be able to say, what I wanted to say then is that, well, then that means in a democratic republic, we're responsible for the culture of policing that we create because the the, the, the emperor in our context is the Congress and the president whom we elect. And so there's a kind of an, an unjust structure in which the, the guilty are like abused, then it's the job of the Christian to do something about it because we have the opportunity to, to do so. That's the kind of corporate structural stuff. Um, the other thing that I wanted to be able to, then I kind of switched from there to John the Baptist. And what I want to say is that John the Baptist is the forerunner, the one who's getting people ready for the coming of Jesus. And there's groups of people who are asking the question, okay, if Jesus is coming and his kingdom is coming, and it's grace is being shed upon me. How am I going to live my life differently? And one of the groups that came to John to ask, well, how do we live in light of this coming kingdom of God? Were soldiers who are charged with policing. And John tells them, don't extort money from people. Don't um, be content with your wages. And like, I forget the other one. I like, don't harass people. It's like, basically do your job with integrity. And, Mm-hmm. And, and the point of that then is that we can talk about structural stuff too. This is important. There's the structural stuff, but then there's the individual life before God. And I think that every single Christian, no matter what your career is, has to ask themselves this question. How do what, how is what God doing for me, has, what God has done for me in my life affect the way that I now go about my vocation? So if, if as a father, I'm asking myself, how does the gospel influence how I parent? And I try my best. I feel at this all of the time to be at least one tenth as gracious towards my children as God is towards me. So my kids make the same mistake over and over again. I tempt, I'm tempted to be frustrated. Like, why do you keep doing this? And then I say to myself, well, God, like, he could say the same thing to me. Like Esau, you've been doing this for decades. We, we talked about this. And so that's how I talk about, and, and one of the things you talk about the black church, this is where like the, the miracle of the black church, the miracle of it is that at the, at the heart of it, you can go back and look at all of these slave, these slave testimonies and all of these sermons that come out of slavery. It's how often they turn to passages like Acts chapter 17, verse 26, from one blood, he's made all of mankind to dwell on the face of the earth. And black Christians say, you know what? We want freedom. But on the other side of freedom, we want community because we feel like the God wants to save 
the enslavers too because they're caught up in their own form of oppression. And so they're just running through black Christianity. Yes, rage. Yes, injustice. I mean, fighting against injustice. But this profound sense of sadness about the blindness that some people have about the ways in which their their distorted picture of the world hinders them. And so black people want other people, white Christians in particular, to be free of this, this lie that keeps them bound. And that's nothing other than the grace of God, that we've chosen this, this call for reconciliation after justice instead of revenge. Right, this desire for community but but community that's not <laughs> that's not another yeah. plantation yes. community that is marked by by equity and uh commitment and, and and kindness and grace and so yeah absolutely i think you're spot on about that so i want to i want to open it up to you as we get near towards our end of our time dialoguing about this book and just to say you know as people move through this particular this particular chapter which was kind of your your catalyst chapter um Pastorally speaking, uh, when the longstanding kind of historical terrorism of the of the police state is is a reality, it's 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 baked into the experiences of many Black Americans, and and then our present political moment. How pastorally are we to think about what you've written to minister to people who are dealing with the, the same fear that you described of yourself as a young man, um, just trying to make it home, like just coaching yourself through this. Yeah. What do we have to say to that mother, to that son, to that daughter, to the person who's inundated with these images today? What does the gospel uh, have to say? Well, the first thing is I want to say that, and this may seem like a, a small thing, but hopefully you understand what I mean when I say this, Christina, is that we're not crazy. Because even though we know we have these experiences um, and they're kind of baked into how we experience the world. There's a part of us that sees like the tremendous kind of pushback, sometimes from our own brothers and sisters in Christ. We begin to ask ourselves, am I a crazy person for like believing these things in these texts that God loves me and that God cares about what's happening to me? And these people who says that God doesn't care about these things are using the Bible to justify it, right? And they're trying to drive this wedge between this faith that we hold dear and the justice that we seek. And so if this book allows people to keep those two things together, right, I am not a crazy person for looking in the biblical text and see in the biblical text a God who cares about what's happening to us, then that book has done its job. But the second part about that is, is, is great. Well, it's one thing to have empathy, we also need to know that God has power. I mean, like, Christine and me, and you can both agree that racism is bad. We can both empathize, but we can't train society, right? We can't do it on our own. There needs to be a God who's more powerful than the state, a God who defeated death. And so if they see in this text not just a God who cares, but a God who cares and is powerful, and who has shown his power through the death and resurrection of his son, then it gives us the ability to continue to kind of push for justice. Um, I wish I could, the, the book kind of doesn't stop, stop here. So I don't want to talk about too many of the other chapters. But what I want to say is that like the, the question of policing is, is inseparable for the larger question about the world in which God is creating. And if God is creating this larger world in which his son exists as king, 
then what the Christian does now is does the best that they can to to kind of point towards that kingdom and do the justice that we pursue. And so if it, if it inspires the Christian to continue in that work and the confidence that God has not abandoned them, then I think the book has done its job. And the other thing that I think that, that I wanted to do, and this is and this is true, Christina, I think that the exegesis has been done. I really think it has. And even if you disagree with like a point here and a point there in my book, I want to say is that like, we need to understand what's actually going on in the culture. And we can pretend like it's a theological debate and there's kind of these two sides reading the scriptures. But I think as clearly as the, as the scriptures can be, the scriptures are clear. And what I think is becoming more and more common, I think this is one of the things, this is one of the goods of social media and the kind of the mass spread of information. That like the lie can't, you can't keep, you, you can't control things anymore. And so nobody believes this lie that God doesn't care about this stuff. What you're seeing instead is kind of the imposition of power to suppress the truth. And what I want, what I hope this book does is is, it's another kind of um, push against this wall that's trying to keep people trapped in fear. Because the Bible is so clear about this stuff. The only way they can kind of keep these structures in place is to convince Christians if you start to care about these things, then you're going to lose your theological bearing. You're going to become some kind of like progressive person who doesn't believe anything about Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the scriptures or all of these other things. And so fear is keeping people bound. And so if this Bible liberates people from that fear to believe that they can, they can pursue both orthodoxy and orthopraxy together, then it's done its job. So I want them to understand, one, that God is not unconcerned about these things. Two, I want you to understand that God has the power to bring about those things which he promises. And three, I wanted to remove the fear that, that, that keeps people bound from pursuing these things because they feel like it's somehow unfaithful to the, the witness of the Old and New Testament. It's so helpful, Dr. McCulley, on today. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about just the role that that violence plays in suppressing people's voices. And in the same way that that, that violence within policing does that, the violence of um, the spiritual violence and the psychological violence of telling people that they don't love God because they want justice yes. to be done. Um, that's a, that, that completely parallels that same terroristic dynamic, right? Um, and Christ has given us grace so that we can do justice. So I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to chat with you today. I know people will be blessed by by this book and by your continued uh, work in higher ed and in ministry. Um, so thank you for your time today. And, and thanks for the folks who tuned in for another episode of the Jude 3 Project. You can grab the curriculum, donate, or uh, take the online course at jude3project.org. Uh, remember, um, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you know what you believe and why. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses 
based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.